Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Colossians chapter 2, we've been here for quite a few months now. We are working through Colossians verse by verse, chapter by chapter, page 834 in the Seat Bibles. And in just a second or two, I'm going to begin reading from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Verse 20 of chapter 2 to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together just for a brief, brief prayer. Our God and Father, may the love of Jesus fill us as the waters fill the sea. Christ exalting, self-abasing. This is victory to me. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. There was one question asked by two men. These were men of standing. These were men of worth, of intellectual acumen. These were capable men, men you could build around on earth. One was a lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law, the other, a wealthy young man who had a position of authority. Their, their question was this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the person their question was directed to is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer that Jesus gives to their question should have, frankly, put them on their knees. It should have put them on their knees, asking God for mercy on them to save them, because in the answer that Jesus gave them, they should have come to the conclusion that they could not save themselves. But if you know these two stories in Luke's gospel, it did not bring them to their knees. So to the rich ruler, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter and says, what must you do to inherit eternal life? Give God everything, sell it right now, give it to the poor, and then follow me. But if you know the story, there is more being said here by Jesus than just the surface stuff. The Bible doesn't teach that a lack of dollars and a lack of sense is how one can enter God's heaven. Poverty has never, ever been the uh, way to Christian spirituality, just as wealth. Wealth ought to never be confused as a means to godliness. Jesus knew his heart, and he knew that this rich ruler had another little God, and it was gold, and that was the point. Our rich ruling friend hadn't kept all the commandments like he said he did to Jesus. And so right out of the gate, commandment number one, he's guilty. No other gods before me. So the answer that Jesus gives, he can't deal with. He walks away. He's speechless. He's wealthy, so maybe it was like a negotiating technique, if you've ever been around these people. However, as he walks away, Jesus lets him walk away. The other man's a lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law, and Jesus is answering the same question. What must you do to inherit eternal life? This is what Jesus says. Love your neighbor like you love yourself, and that's it. Do that, 
and eternal life is yours. Finding that difficult, as we all should, the Bible says the expert wanted to justify himself. And of course, no mere man and no mere woman can justify themselves before a holy God, but he wanted to. He's a capable man. I mean, you don't become an expert at things by just rolling out of bed and, you know, putting on your slippers. It takes time. It takes determination and commitment and sacrifice. He, he's a self-made man worshiping the one who made him. So in this parable, Jesus lays down a scenario to, to him that frankly puts him in a corner. The Jewish people's arch enemies are the Samaritans. It's an impossible situation that Jesus gives to this man. The story is the good Samaritan. The story unfolds, and as the story unfolds, the man has a clear indication that he can't justify himself, and he knows it, because the kind of love that Jesus was talking about has to be perpetual. It's not temporary, and therefore it has to be supernatural and not natural. And the point of Jesus' answers to the expert, to the rich ruler, and, and to anyone is that no one can do anything to inherit eternal life, to come into possession, to have eternal life. Thereby, these men cannot come to a logical and necessary conclusion that only an act of God can save them. Only an act of God can keep saving them. And in these two men, you have the story of humanity's desperate search for a cross religion, for a Christless religion. Anything, I will take anything but a crucified Christ in order to be right with God, in order to be holy before God, in order to have peace with God. And therein you have the difference between religion and Christianity, between death dressed up as life and eternal life accomplished by a death, only one death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion, I will do it, and you can say it with a big ego, or you can say it with some sincerity. I will do it, just tell me what to do. No. Christianity, Christ has done what you and I could never do. Now repent and live a new life afterwards. So in these things, unless we think as Christians that we are too capable on some level to fall for religion, let me remind you, that's exactly what was happening to the Christians in Colossae. In Colossae, they were false teachers. They kept coming and coming. They'll, they'll never stop, okay? They bother people and they trouble people. They came, as you would suspect, with religion. Their, their method is what you would guess. Intimidation, an inflated sense of self, and promised victory over indwelling sin. Isn't that what it usually comes with? I can give you the victory over fear and you'll never fear again and you never have to be afraid again and you'll never sin again and on and on. You're not what you should be, they would say to them. You're not free. Your conversion really isn't enough. Christ, his gospel, that's a wonderful first step. Your house fellowships, your church meetings, they're okay. You know, for old ladies and old men, right? You know, look at you. You're a passionate person. Don't be held back by all this stuff. Or look at you. You're a wreck and you need some help and, and they're not helping you. Isn't it funny how one of the issues that the pagan world and the Jewish world in the first century had with Christianity, when they would say, these are our problems with Christianity, they would say, you know what? You guys aren't religious enough. You are not religious enough. You mean you worship, you listen to preaching, you pray, you spread your gospel, and you do good deeds, and that's about it. So your worship services are just so boring, and you know, a sermon and song and praying, and, and yeah, you spread your gospel, but you don't do the things that we do. 
So, so the false teachers come to them. Special rites, as we've been learning, and special group meetings for only the super serious people, which might mean, which might mean in our day, only if you can afford it. But anyway, they came with outward observances. Verse 16, if your Bible is open, special diets and special days. Verse 18, inward experiences, mysticism. These people took their stands on, on dreams and on visions and, and mystic trance and as words they said they heard from God. And that was the basis for why they should be heard. And that was the basis for their, why they should be listened to. And what we learned last time, and we have to go through this briefly again, is that in the case of these false teachers and their visions and their dreams and their trances, they were lies. They were nothing more than verse 18c, hot air. And the biblical principle that we learn that Paul laid down about any kind of missed experience at all, whether, whether it's a real one or imagined one, is that those things, whether they really happen or did not happen, they are not to be pandered and they are not to be used as the basis for our standing with God or the basis to elevate our spirituality or the basis of authority on matters that they said they had their vision, dream, or mystic experience about. And so we learned that from 2 Corinthians 12, 1, 6. We don't have the time to go through all that today, but essentially what Paul laid down was this. Paul essentially said, even if that thing was true, that the vision or whatever, this is what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 6. I refrain about sharing it, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. In other words, this is what Paul says. This third heaven experience that he had, He's going to keep it to himself. Why, Paul? So that no one will think more of me other than what I am. What are you, Paul? And Paul would say this many times in different ways. I am the chief of sinners, saved by the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. So you take Paul's approach. Paul's approach about mystic experience was silence. The false teachers, noise. Paul waits 14 years before he ever says anything about it. And what he says is essentially nothing. Because, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, he heard things that no one is permitted to tell. The false teachers, as soon as they have it, they can't wait to spray it out. Paul veils his experience in silence because he knows what he is and he knows what he is not. These false teachers reveal their experience orchestrated to puff themselves up, giving an impression of what they actually are not. Right? Of what they actually are not. So if you really have it, Paul says, keep it to yourself because God has already said all we need to know in Jesus Christ. So if you really have it, keep it to yourself. Don't try to market it. Don't try to use it to elevate your stance with people and definitely don't use it at the basis of your authority. And so the reason why Paul says these guys are this way, verse 19, they've lost connection to the head, capital H-E-A-D. They've lost connection to Christ. They've lost connection to the head of the church. And the only way people grow is if they're connected to the head, who's the head of the church, because God causes it to grow. So they put aside Christ, they put aside his gospel, they put aside his people, they put aside his people, and they have cut themselves off from the only thing that can feed and nourish them, that is Jesus Christ. Now, frankly, I find Paul's example and his principle very, very refreshing in this kind of tell-all, put-yourself-forward age. You know, if you have one of those big moments with God, whether it's a real one or imagined one, the biblical warrant is keep it to yourself. Don't try to pander it. 
Don't try to package it and go on tour with it or use it as a means to elevate your standing with God. You know what other people don't know. Paul said this, I'm going to speak. But when I do speak, 2 Corinthians 12.10, I will speak of the things that reveal my weakness. And you would say, Paul, why? I mean, if people are going to listen to you, you better have some power. You better have the stuff, Paul, because, I mean, just look at the world. And Paul says, no, I'm, I'm going to talk about things that reveal my weakness so that Christ's power, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Do, do people need Joe power? Do they need your power? What power do they need? Christ for the world, for the world needs Christ. And so in these closing verses of chapter 2, Paul's not going to negotiate a compromise. I'll let you guys have those experiences as long as you kind of keep it out of the church. He will not sacrifice doctrine on the altar of diplomacy, and he will not sacrifice truth on the altar of tolerance. The honor of Christ's name is at stake here. Truth is at stake here. And people's eternal destinies are at stake here. So the false teachers had legalism. They had mysticism. Those were their bag of tricks. They didn't free anybody. They just called bondage. So there's another ism ism that we have to talk about. And it's very popular with some, particularly with young adults. And it was asceticism. Okay, if you have your worship folder, you can turn to the back there and you can see that wonderful definition which I'm going to read now. This is asceticism. The continual, severe self-denial of normal bodily pleasures as a basis to prove or improve one's standing with God and attaining a holy life. I'm just read it again. The continual, severe self-denial of normal bodily pleasures as a basis to prove or improve one's standing with God and receiving or attaining a holy life. Now listen carefully. Holy living is what we are called to in the scriptures as Christian. No one can deny that. The problem lies in the manner in which that holy life is achieved. So the false teachers taught this, that your body was bad and that your soul was good. It's, it's, frankly, it's dualism. So they cared for the soul, the inner man, and they neglected the body. Now, as you think through this with your Bible, Bible wide open, we would have to say that in that line of thinking, then it would be so strange that Almighty God should choose to clothe himself in human flesh if that body was evil. So these false teachers, they're smart. They understand that. So they said, you know what? Jesus did have a body. It just wasn't a real body like yours and mine. It was skin, yeah, but inside it was all spirit. And so they had to say that because how could a good God in Christ have a bad body? Also in Ephesians 5, Paul gives instructions to husband and he says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. So in these two things, there's a complete rejection of the ascetic way. We do not abuse our bodies. We care for them and we love them in the sense by doing right by them day by day. However, it was in contrast to that biblical approach that of, of our bodies that asceticism grew out of. So I'm just going to give you a few examples of of church history from Jerome. This would have been anywhere around the 4th and 5th century of people who followed this ascetic way. These were religious men. So there was a monk who for 30 years lived only on a small daily portion of barley bread and muddy water. There was another who only lived on figs. 
There was another monk who, who cut his hair only on Easter Sunday, never washed his clothes, never changed his coat until it fell to pieces. Some of you mothers are going, I've got kids that are like that. Anyway, St. McClary slept in a marsh, exposed his body to stings of venomous bees. Hermits lived in abandoned dens of wild animals. Others lived in dried up wells. Some spurned clothes, some spurned shoes, and some never bathed. And what they were saying by doing this was this. I am going to be a holy man by what I deny myself of and by what I do. So to clean the body to them was a pollution of the soul. And here's the sad part. And this is uh, another church historian, Jerome, St. Jerome, 4th century. This is what he writes. The saints that were most admired, okay, in the public square. So the saints that were most admired had become one hideous mass of clotted filth. One hideous mass of clotted filth, and they were being admired as spiritual people. Now listen, do you you see what happens when people get the Bible wrong? There's no help here. There's no need of grace there. There's no Christ there. Their holiness is based on their ability to beat up their bodies and not their inability. Their ability to kind of follow these imagined rules as the basis for their spirituality, and in those things there is no end. I mean, the rules will get coming. Let's just talk about Christmas for a moment. By the way, it's 121 days until Christmas. So you have people who say, you know, some people say only give these number of gifts. And then you have people who write to you and say, don't give anybody any gifts. I mean, give it away. Where does it stop? It's no one's business how many gifts we determine to give in the privacy of our own home. So I'm not saying anything good or bad, but where does it stop? It will never stop. It'll be three, it'll be one, it'll be six, it'll be none. Now, now think with me just for a minute. I hope we take baths, and I hope we wear shoes, and I know, and at least I hope we're not going around getting stung by bees and only, you know, to live a holy life. But, but don't make the jump too quickly here and say, well, you know what, asceticism is really interesting. It's kind of weird, but it's really not my concern. I want to tell you why it might be your concern. If we endeavor to try and win the battle over indwelling sin by simple, sheer avoidance, okay, that will never work. The neglect of the body, no matter how we dress it up, the neglect of the body will never cure the soul. And that was the problem in Colossae. People were saying that the only way to holiness is to lock yourself up and avoid things. Don't do this and not do, the, do, do this, excuse me, and then you can be holy. And people, people many times will say this. And Paul says, no, you might be moral, we'll give you that. You might appear on the surface, at least, to be holy, under control. You might even conform to whatever is the standard in the public square. But that is nothing like Christian holiness. So what Paul does, he says to the Colossian Christians, verse 20a, here's Paul's line of reasoning, you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. The basic principles of this world, which is essentially dead religion. You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I deserve eternal life. I want eternal life. Tell me what to do to inherit eternal life so I can just do it and set myself on the path to holiness. Loved ones, there is absolutely no humility in that at all. I mean, if you're thinking, if I just did more of this thing, 
then I would be better. That is really not a biblical line of thinking. And maybe you've heard a talk or two. Maybe you've read a book or two about how to be a holy man and how to be a holy woman or how to be a holy mom, how to be a holy dad, how to be a holy young person, but there was no hint of the gospel and its promises in it at all. It was essentially this. You need to get serious and you need to do this and get away from that and here's my list. And the evil one is glad to provide a whole host of religions to satisfy all the human appetites, right? A religion that is all sight, And all sound, right? Look at that holy person. (sighs) So that they would never need the gift of faith. They would never really believe that the righteous live by faith. So they would never cry out to God. And they would never have to come to Christ and depend on grace to save them. And depend on grace to make them holy. A few months ago, I was, I was reading 1 Timothy 3.16, and when I read it, I literally just jumped out of my seat. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery of godliness is great. Godliness, the Greek word eusubius, it means piety, holiness. The mystery of holiness is great. Here it is. You ready? He appeared in a body. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world and he was taken up in glory. In other words, the mystery of godliness, the mystery of holiness, of piety is Jesus Christ. The Christian has died to the basic principles of this world. Verse 21, the basic principles of this world, anything that does not rely on Christ, on his cross, on his righteousness and bow to his authority. So the biblical line of thinking goes like this. In Christ, we've died to the penalty of sin. We've died to the power of sin. We've died to the dark powers of evil that stood against us. And we've died to the condemnation of the law which rightly exposed us. And the reason why we have died to these things is because when Christ died on the cross, in our conversion, we died with him. He was put to death. This is, this is what's portrayed in baptism, public baptism. We go under the water. We are put to death. So that those things that stood against us and held us, they no longer stand against us and they no longer hold us. They've been canceled, abolished, chapter 2, verse 15, by Jesus' blood and not because you swore off TV. Do you understand what I'm saying? By Jesus' blood. Therefore, if that's the case, and I'm, and I'm sure you it is, if we are a Christian, then why in the world will we go down verse 21, line? Don't handle, don't taste, and touch. Why would we think that would ever be the basis for our standing with God? Why would we ever think that is the strength to holiness? Why would we ever think that that is the secret to godliness? Paul in verse 22. Let me tell you why those things, handle, taste, touch, they don't work. Because they're destined to perish with use. They're based on human commands and human teachings. Don't handle, taste, touch. These things belong to this time. This time, the things in this time will come to an end, right? The clock is ticking for these things. They're mere surface issues. So in don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, we make too much of the things that are perishable, the things that are passing away. Eat them, don't eat them. They will either rot if you don't eat them. They're just gonna rot. And then when you do eat them, you know what happens when you do eat them? It's just food. Alexander McLaren, theologian. In other words, this is a massive 
overestimate of the importance of material things and the journey for the spiritual life. Isn't that great? A massive overestimate of the importance of material things in the spiritual life. So, so what, whether it's materialism or asceticism, it doesn't matter. One person, one person dresses to the nines in church. And they make them feel better about their standing with God. One dresses down for their standing with God. And one comes in purposely and stinky, messy clothes for their standing with God. They make too much of what they put on. One eats a feast. One completes a fast. One tries a bohemian diet of you know, nuts and berries for their standing with God. They make too much of food and drink. One says no to everything that seems like pleasure for their standing with God. The other says yes to everything that seems like pleasure. They have regard for no one else. They think that their standing with God gives them the freedom to say yes to themselves all the time. They make too much of pleasure because all these things are passing away. And they're based on false teachings, perishable teachings, human commands and teachings. So this is not the eternal bread of heaven. This is is the perishable bread of men and women. Jesus said, I am the living bread. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. Now, it's important that we understand that Paul is not tossing out the law of God here. The law of God is divine. And the law of God is forever. It is not perishable, okay? And so Paul's not saying, okay, everybody, because you're a Christian, just let her rip. We've got a whole chapter three to work through, and we'll work through that, Lord willing, next time. But what Paul is doing is he's tossing out man-made religious rules that do not work because their shelf life is meager. They're decaying. They have no power to bring about holiness and righteousness before God. And it only actually puffs up people's heads. So again, Paul is not tossing out the law. We are free from the law as a way of salvation, but not free from the law as a guide to conduct. We would never know how to love God. We would never know how to love our fellow man if God in mercy did not give us his law. Okay? The law defines the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us by his resurrection. And the liberties, just as an aside, the liberties that you have as Christians... You should enjoy them, and they're given to you, but why? So you can do whatever you want, Galatians 5.13, so that we might serve one another in love. This is why Paul explains to them, verse 6 of chapter 2, since you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in him as Lord. And then chapter 1, verse 6, you have been bearing fruit and growing since the day you, what? You've been Christian, you've been bearing bearing fruit and you've been growing since the day you swore off whatever. No, since the day you heard the gospel and understood God's grace in all its truth. And you see, loved ones, that's grace. What grace does is it brings every man and every woman to the same level before God. It brings every man and woman to the foot of the cross. In our fallen self, we don't like equality. We want a first, we want a second, okay? Okay? We don't want equality. We want a first and a second. But that is not God's way. 
Everyone is privileged. So no matter our background, our ability, your intelligence, the color of your skin, whatever your financial worth is, no matter how committed you are, all of those things are the criteria by which man judges their fellow man. All of these things are nothing, nothing when a person comes before God. And if you're really honest, humanity finds that very humbling. So that a person with lots of power and lots of prestige to get down on their knees like a wee child and say, Lord Jesus Christ, save me and make me the man you want me to be. That's very, very humbling. But it's also very humbling when a person who's had a wreck of a life, a very difficult life, still has to come before God and say, Lord Jesus Christ, save me and make me the person you want me to be. But of course, the evil one comes to them and says, get up off your knees Right? Get up off your knees. Look at, you know who you are. You've always been special. Here's a good list. Do the list. Here's some activities external. Do them and you'll be fine. Don't you know who you are? Right? You always hear now, these people, I, I knew all along I was special and destined for something. And it's like, man, I didn't ever. <laughs> but when you hear those things, what I want you to ask yourself is where is Christ? Where is the gospel? Where, where is the truth about humanity's sinful condition? And why would we ever hear a sermon? Why would we ever hear a Christian talk and be satisfied if we do not hear of Christ, if we would not hear of his cross, of his resurrection, his ascension, and as the basis for everything that we need to be holy? Tell me why that would ever be. You see, the problem with asceticism with a list of do's and don'ts, is that, yeah, they can keep your hands at bay, the surface stuff, but they can't keep the heart and mind at bay. On the outside, everything may appear wonderful, but inside is a horrible mess. Isn't that the prodigal son? The son that was working his, you know, I'm working so hard. He was the bad one. He was doing everything right on the surface. But when conditions came to expose his heart, he was a wreck of a boy. He was a wreck of a boy. Which Paul says, and as we get ready to close, verse 23, this, this is the appearance that receives by resemblance. Such regulations sure have an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed worship, false humility, and harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. It's again, you, yeah, you may achieve conformity by keeping those rules, but you will not achieve godliness, and you will not achieve holiness, and you can't even keep yourself under control. See? You can't even keep yourself under control. So it doesn't even produce what it's promised to produce. So is that freedom? No, it's bondage. So yeah, they appear wise, the human commands and teachings. Yeah, they seem impressive. They may be moral. They may be religious, but they are not Christian. And they are not the path to holiness in any age or at any age. And so Paul says, first of all, it's self-imposed worship. This is self-willed worship. This is a mode of worship which is man-made, of a man's own will, without the command of God. Therefore, this is very pleasing to men because they're in harmony with their own mind. So at the end of the day, their their outward so-called holy life, it doesn't honor God. It doesn't worship and adore God. It actually honors them. So it's a con game, isn't it? It's vanity at the expense of God's honor. This is this is cleverly disguised form of self-indulgence, okay, by a supposed lack 
of indulgence. Isn't that right? It's a cleverly disguised form of self-indulgence by a supposed lack of indulgence. Religious means to elevate the honor of their own name. We know how this goes. Oh, look at you. How do you do it? How do you do it so it doesn't free the flesh? It actually feeds the flesh. And it makes a beast out of the person. We never do this. We never eat that. And we never go there. Stop. Secret in their heart. And you do. And you do. If a kid reaches 18 in the Christian setting and he has these list of taboos and have a speck of joy in his heart, he has no Jesus in his heart, and these sins that are in them just get pent up and inside, so many kids explode. They just explode. How can they keep the list? Because the list keeps changing. It does keep changing. I'm old enough to know that the list changes. Self-imposed worship. False humility. So their activity is carefully thought out in terms of personal dividends that will pay them by acting humble. So they want people to say, excuse me, they do not want people to say, he's not that good. I'm not sure how he does it. They don't want people to say that so that people would see that the all-surpassing power comes from God and not the man. But in their false piety, they say, I am that good. You just come and spend a little time with me. I can tell you how I did it. And out comes the list. But of course, that's vain. It's, it's just covered up false humil- humility. Finally, their harsh treatment of the body, but lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. They can't even keep themselves at bay. With all the religious stuff, they can't even keep themselves at bay. If you ever do take the time to read some things about the ascetic life in the 4th and 5th century, what you're going to find out is these people were filthy people, inside and out. They were very, very perverted. Because their approach to holiness actually excited sin by their do's and don'ts. and didn't kill it. And, and loved ones, that's going to always be the case at any level. When, when self-denial is your only key to holiness, you're dead in the battle for holiness. So they say, I won't look at a body anymore. Okay? Because if I see that body, then all kinds of bad thoughts will come to my mind. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a pillar 50 feet high and I'll sit on top of that pillar. So history records for us a gentleman named Simon Stylitis in the 5th century spent the last 36 years of his life atop that 50-foot pillar. And he stinks and his fingernails grow so long that they go around to penetrate his wrist. And, and I'm not trying to be gross. This is the truth. So his excrement would fall from the pillar down his, or fall from his body down the pillar. And foolish people would come around and pick up the excrement because they think that if they touch the holy man's excrement, that will be the key to spirituality. Ha ha ha, you say? I would suggest to you that many of us maybe do more sterile things but they are not key holiness. Christian maturity for Paul is this. It's an ever-increasing awareness of the gift of the cross and our need of Christ. An ever-increasing awareness of the gift of the cross and our need of Christ. That God was in Christ, not counting men and women's sins against them. So as we think about holiness, and and Lord willing, next time we'll, we'll talk more and more about it, here are the choices. Unlimited power and resources of being in Christ, okay? Unlimited power and resources of being in Christ or a list of someone else's rules or maybe your own rules. 
trying to win the battle over indwelling sin by sheer avoidance. They may appear wise. I'm sure it'll get you some people points. Self-willed worship, but it's useless. It will confuse others. It may misdirect the flesh, but it cannot kill it. It cannot kill it. So Paul does what the Bible does again and again and again. Turn our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be holy? Then become a slave of nothing and no other person than the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be holy? Become a Christian. Become a Christian. J.I. Packer, as he always does, and with this I close, he, he speaks about holiness. And listen to what he says and see if you can catch the ring to it. Secret to holiness, focus on the living Christ and his love for you on the cross. Have you ever done that? Focus on the living Christ and his love for you on the cross. Pray, ask for the strength to say no to sin suggestions and fortify yourself against bad habits by forming good ones. Ask Christ to kill the sinful urge you are fighting. And then he puts in quotes, does it work? And then he says, 70 plus years, I've been doing this. Let's bow together and pray. Our gracious God and Father, everything, every time, sends us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything, every time, sends us to your mighty resurrection, Jesus. Everything, every time sends us to the risen ascended Christ on his throne father we pray for the grace that we need to understand these things it was good and helpful and useful keep them at in our minds and what was not we ask that you would remove them now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be your abiding portion both now and forevermore Amen. If you have any questions about Jesus, the Bible, or what I said, I'll be down here trying to answer them for you. Thank you.